Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Welcome back to our class on constitutional rights. We're just getting started for the semester, and we ended our first week and our last episode with an interpretive question. How should we understand the relationship between the American founding and slavery? And that brought up another question. How should we understand the relationship between the Constitution and the vision of natural rights held out by the Declaration of Independence, that we're all created equal and endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights that include but aren't limited to the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the purpose of government is to secure those rights, and that government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. If those ideas are true, and if the colonists held them out as true, then it highlights a great tension, contradiction, at the heart of the American founding. The interpretive question was put on the table by looking at Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and specifically this section. He says, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then he goes on to say that it's obvious today, this is 1963, that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Now within that speech are packed fundamental questions for us as we move through this course on constitutional rights. I'm not going to be able to sort this all out or settle this for us, but I do want to put on the table some of the evidence we should consider, starting with the historical situation in the summer of 1787 when the Constitutional Convention gathered to write a new constitution for the United States. The historian Don Fehrenbacher has a book called Slavery, Law, and Politics, and he gives a good overview summary of this historical moment. He writes, The anti-slavery tendencies of the revolutionary period were not inconsiderable. State after state took steps to end the African slave trade. Abolition of slavery itself was achieved in New England and Pennsylvania, and it seemed only a matter of time in New Jersey and New York. Virginia in 1782 gave strong encouragement to private manumissions by removing earlier restrictions upon them, and both Maryland and Delaware subsequently followed her example. By the 1790s, abolition societies had appeared in every state from Virginia northward, with prominent men like Benjamin Franklin and John Jay in leading roles. And Congress in 1787 prohibited slavery in the Northwest Territory with scarcely a dissenting vote. One can see in this early movement against slavery, with its promising but limited achievements, the contours of a revolution which failed. Failed, however, not because its supporters lacked sincerity, but rather because they lacked the intensity of conviction that inspires revolutions through to success. In the end, Fehrenbacher concludes, there was a strong disposition to settle for moral gesture and a reliance on the benevolence of history. 
What this incomplete revolution did produce, of course, was a fairly clean-cut division of the new nation into slaveholding and non-slaveholding states, all at the very time when the foundations of the government were being laid. The division proved to be a remarkably even one, Fehrenbacher observes, both in number of states and in population. And so this is the state of play, the reality on the ground in 1787, when delegates assemble in Philadelphia to write a new constitution for the United States. There's a remarkably even division between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states, both in number of states and in terms of population. And the convention has to address this in several specific places as they're writing the text of the Constitution. The first is Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, the three-fifths clause. It says this, quote, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within the Union according to their respective number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. It's a cryptic way of writing this, and this is what the clause is saying. Direct taxes would be apportioned among the states based on their population, and the number of representatives that a state gets in the House of Representatives would also be determined by that state's population. And now a question. Do people who are enslaved within the borders of a state count For the purposes of apportionment, do they count towards the population of that state? The incentive structure here is different than what you might first assume. If you are in a state with a large population of people who are enslaved in your state, then your argument at the Constitutional Convention is yes, they should count fully as persons for the population of this state. Why? Because it increases the number of representatives that our state has in the House of Representatives. And if you're from a non-slaveholding state, and if you have any kind of anti-slavery sympathies or leanings, your argument likely is no, that if people are denied the rights of personhood and kept in a state of slavery and enslaved within the borders of a state, then the state shouldn't be rewarded by having more representation in the House of Representatives on account of the people that they have enslaved within the borders of their state. And so the argument might be that enslaved persons shouldn't count at all toward the population of the state. And what we end up with then is a compromise, the three-fifths ratio, based on calculations of the balance of power between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states in the Union. And the compromise is that people who are enslaved would count toward the population of that state as three-fifths of a person. And so as the clause says in this cryptic kind of way, the population of the state would be determined by counting the respective number of free persons, including people who are bound to service for a term of years, indentured servants, and excluding Indians, Native Americans, who are not taxed and therefore not considered citizens of that state, three-fifths of all other persons. And like everything else, as we look at this issue, it seems like this can cut either way depending on how you look at it. It is a compromise, and the compromise has two different sides and two different views. And then as we move along in the Constitution, we get to Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1. It's a clause about the migration or importation of persons, but it's really a clause about the international slave trade. As it says, 
quote, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. Now, in this clause, there's a recognition that Congress has the authority under the Constitution to prohibit the international slave trade, to prohibit the importation of persons into the United States for the purpose of enslavement. And because of that recognition, there's a desire to have the slave trade persist, or at least not interfered with, to limit Congress's ability to interfere with the slave trade until 1808, to do nothing using the power of the federal government to prohibit the importation of persons to the United States prior to this year, prior to 1808. And so what you have then is, again, a clause that cuts both ways in a sense. There is a recognition, looking at it from one angle, a recognition of Congress's authority to end the international slave trade, to prohibit the importation of persons to the United States after 1808. And in fact, you get a law on January 1st, 1808, doing just that. On the other hand, there is a recognition that the states now existing, as the clause says, may continue the importation of persons as they think proper to admit up until the year 1808, and at that time, Congress's power would kick in. And as we move along in the Constitution, we come to Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3, the Fugitive Slave Clause. And it says this, quote, No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Like the other clauses in the Constitution that address this issue, those who are enslaved are referred to only as persons. The term slavery is never mentioned in the Constitution, and it's written in a cryptic kind of way. These are persons held to service or labor in a state under the laws of the state, The Constitution, in a sense, takes a step back, puts responsibility for the institution at the state level, and recognizes the authority of the states to regulate the institution of slavery. And the provision here says that if somebody is held to service or labor in a state under the laws of the state and they escape, they won't be discharged from their service or labor. If you're enslaved in one state and you escape to a free state, you won't, on account of the laws of that state, be emancipated. You'll be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. But it's written in an ambiguous kind of way. It uses the passive voice, shall be delivered up. It doesn't say exactly who shall do the delivering up. Whose responsibility is this? State or national? Who enforces this? And this becomes a big issue in the 19th century. And then finally, we come to Article 5 about amending the Constitution. And there's a specific way in which the Constitution cannot be amended. According to Article 5, the Congress shall propose amendments to this Constitution, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article. And then you go back and you look up Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1, and you see that it says this the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. In other words, there is no way to amend the Constitution to get rid of that compromise. That is a hardwired feature of the Constitution. 
the slave trade will be protected, at least protected against interference by the federal government. States could do what they want here until the year 1808. And again, you can look at this in two different ways. After 1808, the federal government has the authority, an authority that the national government did not have and would not have had under the Articles of Confederation. But on the other hand, there's a 20-year period in which Congress will not exercise that power, part of the price of the compromise that brings the Constitution together in the first place. And then if we're thinking beyond these specific compromises, we can look at the Constitution in broad strokes. You have Article I creating the legislative power, Article II the executive power, Article III the judicial power, Article IV deals with issues of federalism, Article V about how to amend the Constitution, Article VI about debts, supremacy, constitutional oaths, and Article VII about ratification. What's absent here is a Bill of Rights. There's no summary list of rights like you might find in some of the state constitutions. And immediately there's a debate that goes on in the United States prior to ratification about whether or not this constitution is dangerous precisely because it doesn't specifically protect individual rights. And this gets into a larger theoretical debate about the best way to protect individual rights and about the model that we have at the federal level, a model in which the powers of government are limited and enumerated. And if limited and enumerated, why list exceptions to powers that don't exist in the first place? If we've never granted the federal government the power to deprive us of these rights or to abuse its power in this way, why write it down? Would that not actually miseducate the public in some kind of way? This was Alexander Hamilton's argument against a Bill of Rights in Federalist Number 84. He wrote, Bills of Rights in the sense and in the extent in which they're contended for, are not only unnecessary in the proposed Constitution, but would even be dangerous. They would contain various exceptions to powers which are not granted, and on this very account would afford a colorable pretext to claim more powers which are not granted. For why declare that things shall not be done which there's no power to do? Why, for instance, should it be said that the liberty of the press shall not be restrained when no power is given by which restrictions may be imposed? I will not contend that such a provision would confer a regulating power, but it's evident that it would furnish to men disposed to usurp a plausible pretense for claiming that power. They might urge with a semblance of reason that the Constitution ought not to be charged with the absurdity of providing against the abuse of an authority which was not given and that the provision against restraining the liberty of the press afforded a clear implication that a power to prescribe proper regulations concerning it was intended to be vested in the national government. In other words, Hamilton's saying here, we have presented to you a constitution. The constitution has limited authority and limited power delegated to the national government. Nowhere do you find a power to regulate the press or to interfere with the freedom of the press. But if we turn around and pass an amendment that says Congress shall not restrict the freedom of the press, then some people might assume, not unreasonably, that Congress did have the power before that amendment was passed. And it might lead them to conclude that there are all sorts of other powers. It would give them a pretext to claim other powers that were never granted in the first place. It's an argument that the Bill of Rights would actually empower the government rather than vice versa, that it would have the opposite of its intended effect, 
Rather than limiting government, it would empower government by making an argument that these are the sum total of our rights and only these limits define the limits of congressional power or national power, that everything else is on the table, if not specifically prohibited in this Bill of Rights. This is a big question for us, and so we'll return in our next class to the Bill of Rights, to the first 10 amendments to the Constitution that come after those ratification debates that are themselves ratified in 1791. And then we'll look at the question that comes up in the 19th century about whether or not those amendments to the Constitution that represent limitations on government power also limit the power of state governments. Are states responsible for protecting the rights outlined in the first 10 amendments to the Constitution? This is the question that comes up in Barron versus Baltimore in 1833. And spoiler alert, the Supreme Court in 1833 says no, that these amendments are only limitations on the national government and not the state governments. And so we'll consider Chief Justice John Marshall's argument in Barron versus Baltimore, why exactly he made that case. And then we'll move forward to the Civil War Amendments, to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and then the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868. And one of the first cases that came out of that amendment, the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873, and a question, did anything about the Civil War, about those Reconstruction Amendments, change or alter the understanding of the relationship between the Bill of Rights and the states that we found in 1833 in Barron versus Baltimore.